First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, in this epistle that we know as First Timothy, Paul is obviously writing to his young colleague in ministry, Timothy, who is serving at the church of Ephesus. And he wanted, in this letter, Timothy to know how he was to conduct himself as a pastor in the church. And so Paul makes reference to the church in chapter 3, verse 15, as the pillar and support of the truth. And as he's thinking of the church as the support of the truth, he moves on in this very next verse, chapter 3, verse 16, to speak of the common confession of the church, that is, the, the truth which is confessed by the church. And so he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he proceeds to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ very shortly and succinctly in six short lines, six short phrases that you see there. And at first glance, Paul's train of thought here might not be very evident. He moves rather quickly from speaking about the church to mentioning the mystery of godliness and then to speaking in these six lines about Jesus. But let's tonight slow down for a moment and try to understand his train of thought and what he is getting at. For starters, uh, we need to understand what he means by this word mystery. When I was a boy, I uh, became very interested, probably about 12 years old or so, in, in Sherlock Holmes. And uh, here within the last week or so, I've started reading to my children some Sherlock Holmes. I like a, a good mystery story like that. But Paul's use of the word mystery here is not quite like the way we use the word when we're talking about Sherlock Holmes cracking a case. Paul's use of the word mystery here in verse 16 is very similar to how he uses it elsewhere in this letter and in his other epistles. When he uses the word mystery, he's talking about a revealed truth. And I think probably one of the best key passages to understanding what he means by mystery is the way that he speaks in Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 28, where he says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. And so catch what Paul was saying there in Colossians 1. He said that his message was one that had been long hidden from past ages and generations, but it was hidden no longer. It was it was revealed. In other words, with the coming of Christ and the spread of the gospel, God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so if we think back to the Old Testament times before the coming of Christ, the the Mystery, this revelation, what was revealed in the coming of Christ was kept hidden. Now, certainly there were the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. There were the types and shadows of the temple and the priesthood, the sacrifices and so on. These things that were all pointing the way forward to Christ. They were truly telling of his coming and truly telling what he would do. But the full picture 
was not yet given. This is why Peter could speak of the Old Testament prophets, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, and say that they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. And he could say that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so the prophets were speaking the truth about what was to come, but the fullness of the picture that they were painting, the fullness of the mystery had been hidden in the past ages and generations. The Gentiles, with very few exceptions, were completely ignorant of it. And prior to the coming of Christ, even the Jews, to whom the oracles of God were committed, even the Jews did not fully understand all that God was going to do through his son in order to save the world through him. But now, with the coming of Christ as a historical fact, the mystery has been revealed. And as we can see in, in what follows there in 1 Timothy 3.16, we, we see the content of the, the, the mystery, namely that Paul has in mind here the incarnation and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls it here the mystery of godliness because the revealed truth of Jesus is in fact the only means by which we can attain to godliness, by which anyone can attain to godliness. In other words, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is the only true source of piety. The revelation of Christ in the gospel is the only source of true religious life, the only source of godliness, because this is the way by which we are united to God. This is the only way in which a man or a woman can come into fellowship with the living God. I think that one writer was on the right track here when he commented on verse 16 and says, This was the thought in St. Paul's mind, that the great revelation of the religious life is Christ. And without saying that the mystery is in fact Christ, passes from the mystery to the person of Christ as being one and the same. Then thus passing, he is naturally led to a summary of those particulars wherein Christ has been revealed as a ground for the godliness of his church. And so, in other words, without expressly saying that Christ is the mystery, Paul just kind of passes, passes by very quickly from speaking, great is the mystery of godliness, and then he speaks of the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus in those six lines, and he just passes seamlessly from telling us what the mystery is to passing to the person of Christ, indicating that the person of Christ is, in fact, this mystery of godliness. Because as Christians, our religious life, our piety, our godliness is all bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And being bound up with him, having him as the source of our godliness, the sustenance of our godliness. And then that means then that our godliness is also bound up with these historical facts of which Paul speaks here in verse 16. Because if we understand what Paul is talking about here, and we understand the gospel, then we understand that apart from this truth here, that of what Christ has come and done and accomplished for us, we have nothing. No godliness, no anything else. In other words, Christ is our all. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And after mentioning 
this mystery, which is Christ, then Paul moves on to speak of Christ in these six succinct lines. Now, let's, we'll consider what Paul's getting at in, in each particular line. And once we have done that, then we'll come back to the first of the six, because what we'll see is that all of the rest are dependent on the first. If it weren't for the first line, none of the rest of the six would ever be accomplished. And so he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What was once hidden has now been revealed to us in the gospel. But even though it's been revealed, it has not been fully grasped by us because even what has been revealed still remains somewhat difficult for us to grasp. Because just think about this first statement, the first of the six. He says, He who was revealed in the flesh... Now, who's Paul talking about? Well, obviously, he's talking about the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, being revealed in the flesh. Again, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we can understand that to a degree. We can say true things about what this means, that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that In the womb of the virgin, the eternal word united to himself, a true human soul and body from the moment of conception. Now, we can understand some of what this does mean and some of what it doesn't mean, but how did it happen? How did God do it? I think John Chrysostom in the ancient church expressed it well when he said, I know that the Logos is made flesh, but how it took place, I do not know. Do you marvel at my ignorance Every creature is ignorant of this. He was revealed in the flesh. Paul goes on to say that he was vindicated or justified in the spirit. And I think the the contrast here between the first line, manifested or revealed in the flesh, and the second line, vindicated in the spirit, points to the union of the two natures in Christ. It's human nature being spoken of as the flesh, the divine nature being spoken of as the spirit. And whereas Paul uses this word flesh to denote Christ's complete and full humanity, Paul sometimes uses, it seems, the, a reference to spirit to point to the fact that Christ was vindicated as truly divine, being the eternal Son of God. And this vindication was something that took place when Jesus rose from the dead. And I think uh, Paul's train of thought here can be illustrated by Uh, What he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he speaks of Christ, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, flesh, again, denoting the full humanity of Christ, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. There also in Romans 1 you have uh, what seems to be the contrast between Christ's human descent according to the flesh on the one hand and Christ's divinity, his deity, according to the spirit of holiness, on the other hand. And it was according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. And if we, if we think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there are many places in Scripture where we see that God the Father raised him from the dead, but we also find in Scripture that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Just think Think to John 2, right? When uh, Jesus goes into the temple, drives out the money changers, and they demand a sign, by what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, here's the sign, tear down this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. 
And the disciples did not know it at the time, but they later came to rightly understand that Jesus was talking about his resurrection. And the point is that Jesus raised himself from the dead. He had the authority, as he said, to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again. And Christ's resurrection was his vindication. It vindicated him from the jeers and taunts of his enemies. In his resurrection, he was declared to be righteous because by the very fact that he was able to raise himself uh, again from the dead and that God the Father raised him from the dead indicated that Christ had succeeded in making atonement for his people. If Christ had been a sinner or if he had failed to make atonement for the sins which he had taken upon himself on the cross, he would not have been able to raise himself from the dead. But Christ raised himself from the dead as the divine Son of God. Again, he had the authority to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again. This fact that he took up his life again proved that he was divine, that he is God. No one else has ever raised himself from the dead. Certainly, Jesus raised people from the dead, and we see it in the, in the Old Testament, the ministry of, e- of Elisha and so on, but these people were not raising themselves from the dead. But Jesus did. And this, in this, he was declared righteous. He was vindicated according to the working of his divine nature in which he raised himself from the dead. And you notice what Paul says next. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, was seen by angels. Now, obviously, as we have sung tonight, the birth of Jesus was announced by angels. And we see angels ministering to him in his life after his temptation in the wilderness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that angels ministered to him. But inasmuch as Christ's vindication in the spirit of which Paul had just spoken, ultimately points to his resurrection from the dead, I think that probably what Paul has in mind here is pointing to the angels who were the first witnesses of his resurrection. If you think back to Luke chapter 24, verses 5 and following, it was the angels who said to the women on that blessed day of resurrection, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise again on the third day. Jesus was crucified and raised to life again, and he was seen by angels. The angels were the first witnesses of his resurrection. And being raised from the dead, he appeared not just to the angels, but to his apostles, to those whom he had appointed as witnesses of his resurrection. And he commissioned them to proclaim the truth about him, his life, his death, his resurrection. And uh, they did. The book of Acts tells us about it. The letters of the New Testament tell us about this, that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. And therefore, Paul can speak in Colossians 1.23 of the gospel as having been proclaimed to every, uh, proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And that proclamation has continued down the centuries to this very day. Jesus Christ is still proclaimed among the nations. The very fact that you and I are here is a proof of it. Christ was proclaimed to us in our nation in language that we could understand and the Holy Spirit granted us saving faith as we heard the word of God. And not only was Christ proclaimed 
among the nations, as that fourth line there indicates, he was also believed on in the world. This was the direct result of the fact that Christ was being proclaimed among the nations, is that he was believed on in the world. This means that men and women heard this message about Jesus, they repented of their sins, and they believed. They agreed that the message was true. They trusted in the Christ who was proclaimed to them. And those who believed received life in his name. John tells us in John 1 that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus was believed on in the world. Men and women turned away from their idols, turned away from their lusts, turned away from their wickedness to serve the living God through this message which they had heard and believed concerning the Son of God. Through faith in Christ, all who believe are justified, counted righteous in God's sight forevermore because they are united through faith to Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who was declared righteous and vindicated at his resurrection, as we have already seen here in verse 16. The sins of all who believe are taken away and forgiven, and Christ himself becomes their righteousness by faith. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, and we even exult in tribulations, because, as Paul speaks in Romans 5, we know that tribulation brings about perseverance, which leads to proven character, which leads to hope. Jesus Christ was believed on in the world. And lastly, Paul says that he was taken up in glory. After Christ had risen from the dead and given instructions to the apostles that they were to proclaim him among the nations so that he might be believed on in the world, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And though we may not often think of the ascension as such, The ascension of Christ is an event of great significance for us and for our salvation. And thus, the ascension is confessed in those sections of the ancient creeds that deal with the historical facts of the gospel and the life of Christ. Calvin went so far as to call the ascension one of the chiefest points of our faith. And really, the ascension is a critical piece in the history of our redemption, just like Christ's incarnation and his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection. Because just think for me with a moment what it would mean if Christ were not ascended into the right hand of God. If there were no ascension, we would not have a high priest, an advocate who made purification for sins seated at the right hand of the Father. If there were no ascension, we would not have, in the words of Hebrews 8.2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. It is through the ascension that Christ entered into the true holy place, into heaven itself, there to appear in the presence of God for us, as we find in Hebrews 9.24. If Christ had not ascended, then the Holy Spirit would not have come on the day of Pentecost. As Jesus himself says in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. According to Ephesians 4, 8, it is in the ascension that Christ led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Because Christ has ascended, we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. Because Christ has ascended, 
the Holy Spirit has come. Maybe we don't often think about the ascension and its significance in the gospel history, but we should. For just as Christ united to himself a true human nature in the incarnation for us and lived sinlessly for us and was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, so also he ascended into heaven. Just as he did all those things for us, so also he ascended to the right hand of the Father for us in order to be our advocate and great high priest. He ascended into heaven in order to send the Spirit And all who receive him by faith are already, even now, seated with him in those heavenly places. Indeed, great is the mystery of godliness. All of our spiritual life, our relationship to God, our piety, is all dependent on the truth encapsulated in these six short lines. Were it not for the truth of these, we would have no hope at all. But for this mystery of godliness, we would be stuck in those mournful words of Isaiah 59, 11 and following, where he says, All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering the heart, lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. What a sad picture of the reality that those who are separated from God live in. And that's the reality that we were in before Christ and that's the reality that we would remain in were it not for the truth of Christ and his coming. We would be lost in the hopelessness of our sins, lost in our rebellion against God, lost in our denial of God. We would be bearing the scars of the way that we had rebelled against God, bearing the scars of the way that others have rebelled against God and hurt us. We'd be hating one another and being hated by one another. We would be without hope and without God in the world. But the good news of the gospel that we consider at this time of the year, is that Jesus Christ was revealed in the flesh. That the Son of God became a man and was born into the world. And all the rest of the, of the gospel history flows from this fact. If Christ were not revealed in the flesh, he would not have been vindicated from the Spirit, by the, in the Spirit. He would not have risen from the dead because he could not have died if he were not a man. He could not have made atonement for our sins if he were not a man. And likewise, he would not have been seen by the angels in in his resurrection because there would have been no resurrection. He would not have been proclaimed on the nations or believed on in the world or taken up in the glory of the ascension had he not been revealed in the flesh. You can see what I mean. The historical facts of the gospel would not have occurred if Jesus Christ had not been revealed in the flesh. And therefore, we would have no piety, no godliness, no saving relationship with God at all if the Son of God were not manifested in the flesh. Nothing at all. But the good news that I bring to you tonight is that the Son of God was revealed in the flesh, Jesus born of Mary, and all the rest flows in perfect succession from that. Therefore, let us join with Zacharias of old and say with him, as he said in Luke 
Chapter 1, verses 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Please pray with me. Almighty God, who has given to us your only begotten Son to take upon him our nature as a man, and as we remember at this time of the year to be born of a pure virgin, we ask, Lord, that you would grant that we, being regenerate, born again, made your children by adoption and grace, that we may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would be ever renewed, that the new life you have given to us in our new birth when we believe the gospel, that this new life would continue to grow within us, that we would abide in Christ, that we would love him, that we would serve him, that we would treasure him with all of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.